All right. Okay. Welcome to the Thereafter Podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change. We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities, and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray. In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite. There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing. Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter. Another week of the Thereafter podcast. Oh, I mean, you said you wanted it to sound more radio-ish, but I didn't know, like, today. That's the flair. <laughs> That's the flair. We just oh, added yeah. it. Talk about, I, I don't know if we're going to get right into it, but talk about tweets that don't get seen by anyone. I think that tweet got, like, eight views, <laughs> and, and they and were mostly the you oh, no, and I me. Said, you put up a poll. And asked if we should have more flair, and I think it got nine votes. I, I did yeah. see that, and, and but I also it was a little vague because even I, the person, the other person involved in this podcast that you were asking about, was a little bit like, "Wait, what? What are you talking about with the flair?" <laughs> I it's just it's just that I I sometimes will listen to podcasts that have a little bit higher production and, you know, it feels a little bit more scripted and a little bit more narrative and it has music. And sometimes I listen to those podcasts and I think, man, we should, we should do that. But then other times I'm like, I don't know, maybe people like the raw, we're sitting down, we turn the mics on, we, we get into it. And we've got an interlude that runs to take us from segment to segment. But beyond that, we don't have a lot of pop and circumstance. Is you it know, pop and funny, circumstance? I, Is that the right I probably, I think okay. so, but I'm not a person to ask about expressions. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I, I, um, but it, I thought that when we were at Wild Goose because we sat in the podcast tent a bit, um, we recorded and then other people recorded. And when you and I record, we always just kind of like, it's kind of like we, um, get behind the wheel of a car and just hit the gas and just go. <laughs> and it's like, Hey, like we're like, we're just going 60 miles an hour. We're not really sure where, but like. Once we get there, it's like, oh, that was like a nice little trip. And there's other people that uh, they um, like. I remember we watched Rough Recovery, Justin Gentry and Sarah Heath, and and they like hit record, and it was like they were podcast personalities. And I was like, oh man, like yeah. they're really good at this. They and, have a and narrative rhythm, and you yeah. see them go into that rhythm of like. You know, you're here with the Rev Covery podcast, two hottest, two of the hottest ex-pastors you'll ever see, Justin Gentry and Sarah Heath, talking about what it means to be in recovery from Rev Covery. You know, and you're like, oh man, you yeah. guys have a rhythm. And I don't For feel like sure. we have that consistent, like but I also think it makes us like lovable in a way. I, I I'm hoping I don't know, our <laughs> listeners can tell us. But I feel like we're more like puppies. It's like, oh, that's so cute. They have so much energy. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's how I feel about you. I don't know and if that's how people feel about me. It's how I feel about you. It's it is it is and it is and you don't know exactly what you're gonna get. And we keep it interesting. So we're gonna keep doing it this way because there wasn't Twitter had no interest in showing that tweet to anybody. 
and uh, you know the feedback was predominantly keep it the way it is. Uh, I also, you know, feel like there is an element of like, do you, the quantity, right? Doing every episode, you know, every week episodes, doing interviews every week. I like how many guests we get to talk to. Like we are yeah. quickly, uh, you know, almost to a hundred episodes. All of those numbered episodes are with guests. That's almost a hundred people that we've gotten to talk to. So we get a really wide spectrum of perspectives and opinions. And I really love that. Um, and I wondered what it would look like if we if we didn't do so many episodes, we wouldn't have so many voices. And I think that that's an element of of the podcast too, is we want to have a lot of different perspectives on the podcast. Well, and I think this season we started getting into, you know, our listeners probably have noticed, and we talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but getting into like, okay, there's this topic that we really want to dive into. Um, who is going to be the guest that's the best fit for that topic and talking about that topic. And so, and we've had a little bit more of that, which has been fun. Um, and I also just love that uh, so many of our guests, like are, are people that we either had a relationship with or have built a relationship with through those interviews and through those episodes. Yes. Yeah, I agree. And I always enjoy interviewing people that, we have some relational context with, and I always enjoy when we get to like, you know, build relationships and help out or collaborate with other guests after we get to interview them and we stay in touch, um, rather than just having people pop in and then pop out. So, um, I, I like that about our little thereafter guest family. Yeah. Well, let's get into Twitbits. We've mentioned Twitter a little bit, but, um, one of the things I wanted to talk about, I had, a tweet. I know you had a tweet that had some traction. I want to talk about that too. I had a tweet about the transformed wife. Um, and it, you know, I think she goes by like godly womanhood on Twitter and, and I'm not recommending her. Don't, don't scroll her feet. But basically what I said is that every single one of her tweets activates me. And there's a lot of people that share screenshots of her tweets or share her stuff. I have her blocked. Um, just because there's some people that I have blocked and I can go look at their feed and be like, oh, they said that again and kind of roll my eyes. But for her, it's a little bit different. And, and there was discussion about it when I shared that because somebody said like, yeah, you know, I was I was kind of locked in that system for so long that when I see her kind of perpetuating that, it is triggering. And I'm like, that's exactly what it is. It took so long to unlearn that. And so I guess I would love to just um, have a conversation because that is a way people engage in Twitter um, by sharing toxic takes and, and unpacking what those are. And I think there are some times where that can be helpful. And then there's sometimes where it can be triggering for folks. I don't know. What do you think, Cortland? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think there's nuance to it and I think that there is a balance and I, and I wouldn't say that it is just like carte blanche. Like it is, it is bad. You shouldn't screenshot and share, you know, uh, you know, I, I've seen people say like, it's just, you are just elevating bad takes. Um, and while there's an argument to that, I think that there is value and can be value in calling out these things that are being said. Uh, however, if, if it is all an account does, I, again, I wouldn't condemn it. I wouldn't say, Hey, this is, it's just not for me. Like I see enough of that without having to see it all the time and have it brought back up. And I think that there is maybe a type of person who needs to be made aware of these type of takes and that they exist and maybe needs to get a little bit enraged 
it's not me. I have enough rage. <laughs> like I yeah, have enough I, of that. And so I probably won't follow that account. Um, I might mute the account if it's somebody who does that regularly. And it's not because I, I'm making a moral statement about whether that's right or wrong. It's just for yeah. me personally, it's not, it's not what I want to vibe with. I hear that. And I think it is important to like not be prescriptive about how people engage on Twitter because some people it's it's cathartic for them to do that, to unpack this toxicity. And actually, there are times where somebody has a toxic take and somebody's unpacking of what piece of that is toxic is helpful for me because I'm like, oh, like I didn't really see what was baked into that phrase at first. And now I do, you know, and so I think there are times, like you said, there's nuance. Um, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that it is also like the experience that you have on Twitter is going to be different. I have just recently started muting more accounts. I, you know, am fully supportive of those who block. And I think the blocking is great, especially when it is in pursuit of a safer experience on Twitter for people. For me, I, I I love the mute function because the way I look at it is I want them to see me, you know, and I want them to the, to be able to see all of my tweets. I just don't need to see them. So, so sure, I could block J.K. Rowling. I, I you know, doubt J.K. Rowling's ever going to make her way to my Twitter feed. Um, however, if for some reason one of my tweets gets in her feed, I want to I want her to see it. Um, that's just how I feel about it. Uh, I just don't need to see her trash opinions ever in the rest That's of my so life. That's so interesting because I, I think there's some people that I'm like, I, I want to just be on my side of Twitter and have them be on their side of Twitter and I don't want us to overlap at all. <laughs> there's that, There are some people that I've liked that with. So I do block because I'm like, I don't need the transformed wife to ever see. Um, yeah, I don't need her to see my stuff. I mean, she's, she, I don't know. Maybe, is that? She, I also I love know. the idea of somebody quote tweeting me or replying to one of my tweets like that like um you know matt walsh gets in my tweets and like for some reason gets obsessed with me and like i don't even know because he's he's muted <laughs> like like i wouldn't yeah. even know and i just I love that feeling to go like i can't wait for you to give a shit about me when i stopped giving a shit about you years ago yeah, that's fair. <laughs> There's something, but I, I will maybe say this. it's toxic of me, but I'm just like, I want no, you to scream into good. the void on my mentions that I'll never, I'll never see. But I, and I also before I, cause I want to get into your thing too, but before I do that, I have to say, I, I forgot that this was this week, but I had a whole thread, um, that was kind of a conversation starter about people that stay in jobs that are in um, non-affirming, non-LGBTQ affirming religious organizations or institutions or, or even just organizations that are not affirming. And um, that was like for me, and I, I tweeted about this, like the, the responses and the dialogue that happened in that thread actually changed how I approached that topic and how I viewed it. And I think that there's this thing that's starting to happen on Twitter occasionally, not all the time, where you can have this conversation and have dialogue and have it not be so defensive and reactive and and have people just really say like, hey, this is kind of what I, my perspective, and this is kind of what I think about it. And this is how I see things. And this is how, what's been my experience. And, and actually listen to each other, which is so interesting. And so that was another thing that happened this week on Twitter that I was, I was so shocked at just how kind of that 
dialogue was, um, I can't even think of the word, but just like, it just productive and yeah, productive. That's exactly the word. Yeah. Yeah. It is super rare, but I, I would agree that that, that, that thread and those tweets that replied back, like I learned a ton and there was so much good insight that came from that question that you asked. And I think you and I even got into a conversation and DMS talking about it a little bit. And realizing that the way that we talk about, especially with evangelical institutions and churches, there is such a difference between being the pastor or CEO of a company or the leadership of an organization and being an employee or a person who maybe like works, you know, like I think about myself and like even, you know, you were coming from a position of LGBTQ uh, affirmation and religious organizations, but like my company that I work for in my day job does a lot of business with defense companies. And like, I'm not a huge fan of a lot of those companies. There was some dust up on Twitter not too long ago about a Lockheed employee. And I remember that becoming a topic of conversation. And the reality that people have brought up is that in the systems that we have, it is not always a privilege that someone has to not uh, uh, participate in some form of labor that keeps them employed, that puts food on their table, that allows them to have insurance, et cetera. And, and I don't think that we should hold the custodian at the local megachurch to the same standard that we do the senior pastor uh, and say that somehow that person cleaning the building is perpetuating harm in the same way as the person standing on stage every Sunday. Uh, and that there is a difference between those, those things. Well, and it just goes to show like, even still I'm drawn to rules. I want the rule. I want it to be like black and white and there's so much nuance. Like there's just not a rule and it's, there's, there's so much gray and, and unpacking how privilege weighs into that and unpacking how disability like people talked about People that have disabilities, they can't, they rely on health insurance to survive and you can't just walk away from a job and walk away from health insurance, you know? And, and yeah, it was, it was a really interesting discussion, but you could, um, if we had universal health care, <laughs> shout out 100%. to those in uh, our society who have been working towards that because yeah, you definitely could. And that would be super helpful for so many, uh, so many reasons. Um, yeah, so, sorry. I'm slipping back into my Bernie bro days. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. Um, but I, I, I also want to get into your thing cause you had a funny tweet and I, and I always love to see, uh, your meme and funny tweets that go viral. <laughs> yeah. It's always, it's always the tweets and we, Megan and I were talking about before we hit record. It's like the, the, the curse of Twitter and Instagram and TikTok, especially TikTok, is that the algorithm just picks up what it picks up and, and you know, other things that you really care about tend to get less traction and less attention. And so for me on Twitter, it's usually a tweet that I wrote at like 10 PM on a Thursday that I'm not thinking about that becomes, uh, uh, a more viral success. I don't know that I've ever had a truly viral tweet. Um, Olive Garden. Yeah, I did have that one. I deleted. I deleted that one. My true, my one truly viral tweet. So maybe that was like, uh, I've I've sown that karma into uh, uh, my existence. But even that tweet, again, 
very much off the cuff and very much not <laughs> planned to get that attention. But I had been seeing all these You Can Only Keep One. It was specifically in the uh, uh, music world. Uh, there were people posting, you know, four albums and saying, you know, you can only keep one. And you see this meme trend uh, around, you know, maybe it's like four candy bars. You would know more about that. I'll let you speak on the candy tweets uh, <laughs> at some point. But Those are it, all the ones that I have that get traction, <laughs> candy. <laughs> it, it, it would be, you know, you can only keep one, Snickers, Milky Way, Reese's or M&M's, whatever it might be. And so I was like, oh, this is funny. I'm going to do a You Can Only Keep One. And it was Bible Man, Salty the Songbook, Donut Man, and McGee and Me, uh, all Christian media uh, children's shows from my youth. That Which uh, McGee and Me is clearly the right answer, but okay. Yeah, I mean, and I, I almost <laughs> didn't want to include McGee and Me because it did feel like you know, mountains above the rest, but I could not think of another example that was in the same, same vein. Uh, a lot of people did say, is it Gerber? There was like a, like a, or, or there was something, there was another like puppety, uh, Christian show. Also Davy and Goliath got brought up as another show. Do you remember that one? The Davy and the dog named Goliath. And they were like kind of puppet, stop motion animation uh tv shows from possibly the late 80s maybe early 90s uh yeah, Davy and Goliath it was the, it was the thing I don't remember this someone brought up a pirate there was like a pirate like a singing pirate uh that was also a christian uh children's media uh institution uh there was a rapping rabbit uh that <laughs> Wrapped for the Lord that people brought up as as a as a fifth option, uh, yeah, it got a lot of attention, and so I was blown away at you know the different people who engaged with that. But it 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 does kind of show me how the algorithm kind of tends to. So that tweet was like almost intrinsically or specifically designed to be ratioed because it it mm. it it calls for an opinion before it calls for a like, like no one really likes that tweet. No one sees. And I mean, it has like, I don't know, 300 and something likes on it, but it has, it had for a long time, far more replies than it did likes. And yeah. I think that that is kind of what helped it gain traction because Twitter was like, Oh, people are replying to this and not liking it. It must be controversial. Uh, mm. because people didn't see the tweet and think, Ooh, I like that. There was no yeah. take to the tweet. It was for pretty pictures. sure I liked it though. So. <laughs> yeah. Like some people did, but like, I think it had like 180 replies or 160 replies on it. And it only had like 130 likes. So like it had oh, wow. more replies than likes for a long yeah. period of time. Now I think it is, you know, balanced out a little bit. Um, but I always think that that's funny too, is like, if you can design something that the algorithm will will think is outrage, even though this was just silly and funny. Uh, it it's almost like, oh, this is good. People are like replying to it and not liking it. It must be, and so it makes you realize like how when something gets ratioed, and it just like continues to get when, especially when it is outrage. Um, like we talked about on the former episodes, we've talked about the Band-Aid tweet and some of the other things that were just like massively yeah. uh, ratioed. Uh, 
there was there was another one I was looking back on Twitter at like what my like top uh tweets of all time were and there was one where some guy was talking about church discipline and how you know anybody who uh has this liberal belief should be subject to church discipline and I just said discipline me daddy and then like had like the oh, screenshot yeah. of that that tweet that tweet was like hella ratioed as well uh and so yeah it's it's weird the algorithm is funny it's funny. I was I was chatting with somebody this week about algorithm stuff because it is a little bit of a game sometimes. And and it's funny because they had replied and asked a question about the algorithm and then we were in DMs talking about it. And then he goes, I actually listened to Thereafter and I didn't realize you were that Megan. And I had never been called that, that Megan, Megan before. It was, it was, yeah, it was funny. So um, yeah, I, I think that is it for Twitter for us. Um, I, let's, I think we can start getting into the interview. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's start. I, I talk about how Marla and I got to know each other in the interview, but I will just say that sometimes you just find somebody that you're like, I think we'll be friends. And then you just decide that and then you become friends. And that's how it was with Marla. And I'm really excited that, um, we got to talk to her and I just hope everybody loves this interview and I hope everybody reads her books, her new books. You'll, you'll hear her talk about her old books, but her new books. <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Welcome. Uh, Megan, I'm going to let you enter the guest that we're here with today and I'm so excited to have this guest here. I'm pumped. Yeah, we have Marla. Marla, is it Taviano? Taviano? Taviano. Aviano, yes, and I and and you and I have we transitioned from Twitter friends to texting friends very quickly, and that yeah. So and now we're podcast friends. So this is amazing. I'm I'm excited to have you here. Welcome. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited as well. And we were we were talking a little bit before we started recording that I didn't do the research. Uh, and I'm not as I've seen you all over Twitter. I'm so familiar with you and your work. Uh, however, I have so much more to learn about you. So I'm very excited to spend some time. And then after this episode, really dig into your books and your work and, and all the things yeah. along with our listeners, hopefully who Basically, are learning about you for the first time. Yeah. Cortland doesn't know anything about me. And so Megan and I are just going to make stuff up. So Megan, just play along. <laughs> It's perfect. I'm gonna it's reinvent perfect. myself. Marla used to be in a CCM band. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, I mean, ish. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, but hey, so we always kick off. We always like to give context of who our guests are. Um, if you can tell us a little bit, I've I've read your book, so I know a little bit, but I want to hear from you. Um, so just tell us a little bit about what your experience with faith was and anything else that would give us that context that leads into the faith shift deconstruction, if you're comfortable with that word, whatever evolution it took on after that. Well, when you say you've read my books, usually when someone says that to me, I ask them which ones, <laughs> because if they yeah. read the books from 2006 to 2009, um, and then they're reconnecting with me now um, that usually there's some trouble there or I get an email like I just got this week that said I am so pained my heart is pained to see <laughs> how far you have slid how far away from God that you are now her heart is really pained for that um, no I grew up in a Christian home 
and I love Jesus with all my heart. I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was three years old. And I used to not tell anyone that because who in the hell knows how to accept Jesus in their heart when they're three. But that was my story. And I was a pretty smart kid. So I, I think I kind of knew, I probably knew as much as some six-year-olds did. <laughs> but again, how can we ask Jesus into our heart when we're three or four or six? Um, but I was on fire for Jesus and God and Christianity and all of that from forever. Like, I don't remember a time I wasn't. And my mom says that she prayed for me when I was still in the womb and all of that. So um, I went to church every Sunday, Sunday school, church, Sunday night church, Wednesday night church, Wednesday night youth group. It was like pretty intense. Extra credit. Same, (laughs) same. I did all the things. Yeah. And then I went to a Christian university um, and then I got married. I worked at a Christian church camp. Um, I did my student teaching in Okinawa, Japan with my Christian school, Um, all kinds of stuff. Got married in, I graduated um, a year early from college in 97, got married in 1998 had three daughters in 2000, 2002, 2006. And right around that time is when I started um, what was a longtime dream of mine to be a published author. So in 2006, my first book came out with Harvest House Publishers. It's a Christian publisher in Oregon. It was called From Blushing Bride to Wedded Wife. And then the second one, Is That All He Thinks About? Then Changing Your World One Diaper at a Time than a devotional called expecting. So I was very much on this path of good Christian girl slash woman, wife, mom. Um, And then I started speaking. I would speak to mops groups. I'd speak at marriage conferences. I spoke at a a marriage. No, it wasn't a marriage conference. It was a conference for men, 175 men. My husband- Wait, you were allowed to speak to the men? They invited me. I was the main speaker wow. and I spoke on sex the whole entire weekend to oh, wow. this group of Christian men. Um, that was wow. um, that was pretty, uh, who knows? Anyway, so all of that happened. Um, we moved to Cambodia in January 2015. Before that, we lived in an apartment complex. Um, our, our neighbors were Somali refugees. I'm kind of backtracking because three years before that, um, my husband was 34 years old, had a massive heart attack, almost died. And from there, he went on to have anxiety, panic attacks. We lost our house. He lost his job. A um, whole bunch of stuff happened. So we, then we went to Cambodia for five years, came back in March of 2020 and moved to a new state. We're from Ohio. We moved to South Carolina. Um, Then my husband left unexpectedly in September of 2020. And turns out he had been cheating on me for four of the five years that we lived in Cambodia. Um, And that doesn't really have anything to do with my deconstruction, though. My deconstruction started, I I don't actually have a a certain time that it started when I look back on my 62 journals that I wrote to God from 2000 to 2020. Um, around 2008, 9, 10 is when my eyes were open to poverty and I had not really paid much attention to that before. And I read a book called The Hole in Our Gospel. 
and then helped plant a multi, multi-ethnic church. Our pastor was black. And then I wake up to, oh, there's racism. Um, when Trayvon Martin was killed in 2012, that's when it really kicked into gear for me. A, a new black friend of mine asked why none of her white friends were talking about Trayvon Martin. And I was like, I don't know <laughs> what who this is. I Googled it. And then I just started snowballing. And it is true what they say, the the slippery slope or the dominoes or whatever it is. I mean, once you start to pull on something at all, just you you can't stop asking questions. If this is if this is wrong, then what about this? If this isn't true, what about this? Um, and so the progression, I talk about that in my first book, my the new era of me writing books. Um, it's called Unbelieve Poems on the Journey to Becoming a Heretic. And I kind of go through the progression of that. So it was, I would say, poverty, white supremacy and racism, then LGBTQIA+, all that, the queer community, everything just kind of kept going over a period of 10 years, probably. Um, And now the question is, where have I landed? And I have a poem for that, too, because I have not landed (laughs) anywhere yet, and I don't really plan to land. Um, maybe I will, I don't know. If I had to label myself, I would say that I'm agnostic because I, I truly do not know what I believe. I know a lot of things that I don't believe. Um, Mm. and I feel really, I don't know if the word is lucky, but whenever I meet new people who are not as far along on this journey and I see the pain, I see the fear, I see all of that. I just feel thankful that, I have been through that already. And I had the luxury of going a lot more slowly. And I say that knowing that really I didn't have that luxury. I should not, we don't have any more time to stop being racist, to stop being homophobic, to stop being any of those things. There's no more time. But before it escalated to the point it is now, I was already working slowly through all of that so now here I am where other people are like trying to cram it all in or figure it all out and it's it's really tough to do that but we don't have um we don't have any more time like there's no more time we can't whatever privileged identities we have um we can't take up any more valuable time where people are being marginalized or oppressed. And now now it seems like we're going backwards, all these laws that are being passed and everything. So um, did I answer your question? <laughs> Incredibly well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, oh. I have like 300 more questions. Yeah. Corlin, do it. you have something you want to kick off or? No, I don't have a question. I just want to say that that was a very succinct and well, like usually when, and, and I've been on podcasts too, where people are like, what's your story? And I'm like, I don't know. I was seven. And then I'm like talking about something that happened to me. And then an hour later, uh, we're still not very far. So you really did a really great job. I feel like I got a lot of context, um, for your story. So good. Very good. Very good work. It doesn't always work out that way. I don't know what happened. (laughs) Yeah, it was it was perfectly done. Well, and I guess like there's a lot of different directions we can go and we can go in a lot of ways. But one of my questions as somebody because as somebody for my own self, like I had a blog and I wrote a book and then I changed and that that stuff changed, too. And and even like I go back to my old blog posts and I'm like, like this is where I'm at, but not this. And and so as somebody who was public facing and and has 
published books that now, you know, you have changed and shifted and, and had all of this unlearning that you've done. What is your relationship with not just like your published work, but also with your prior self? Like, wh- how, how do you approach like just looking back on on the work that that you did? Because I think that there's healing in that sometimes where it's like, how we view ourselves, like, you know, there's that you still are the same person, but you're a different person too. Yeah, that is how am I dealing with it? Um, I wasn't dealing with it very well for a while. <laughs> it was really hard. I was not only when I started on this journey, I was not only harsh with other people, I was harsh with myself. And I just came out of the gates. Um, and it might have helped that I was in Cambodia. So I was in Cambodia. 2015. I think that's when gay marriage became legalized and different things. So I'm kind of evolving along with that. And I am on the other side of the world. So I'm no longer in a church community or face to face with these people who believe other things. And you know what it's like when you're on the internet, you can be bold, (laughs) you can say things. So I was, um, I was bold. I might have been a little bit bratty. I didn't really mind if I was shaming people. And I I don't want to be too hard on myself on that um, 2015 me either, because um, I've had people come to me and say, you like compliment me. You didn't ever shame me or you didn't make me feel this way. Or I even had a, a girl who I quote unquote led to the Lord in sixth grade when she was in my cabin at church camp. And she has kind of evolved on this journey too. So she's like, I'm 47. She's 37, maybe. And she said to me just a couple of weeks ago, even back then, you were so gentle and kind and you didn't push. And there was no like you've always carried that with you, whether you really, really believed in Jesus or you really believed that that America is founded on white supremacy, whatever it was. She experienced me as someone who was gentle, whereas like someone in my family and one of my sisters experienced me not as gentle and disowned me because she felt that I was shaming her and all of this stuff. So as I, as I go and as I evolve, I am also going back. And thankfully, like I said, I have 62 freaking journals. If I, I mean, how many people get to see who they really were back then. Now, now we have Instagram and all of that. So I I guess um, people from here on out can just look back and see everything that they said on Facebook. But I didn't have that in 1998 when I got married and started journaling and all that. So I have this all written out and it's all to God and it's all this. And it's, I am like just trying so hard to be a good Christian. I'm failing. God, I'm so sorry. I need to be more submissive to my husband. I just keep trying to lead. And I know he's supposed to lead and like on and on and on. So I can see now from this wise, mature age that I'm at, I can, I can see myself, the one the, the myself that I want to be, I can see her in there. Like she comes out and I can be gentle with her because she thought just like now I want to love people. Like I'm very empathetic. I'm very compassionate. She was too. Like, and she just was a little misguided <laughs> in how she did that. So when I'm looking back in my book from blushing bride to wedded wife, and there's a chapter in there and I'm talking about 
women and how they need to dress modestly and they owe their husbands this and this and this and this. And like, now it makes me want to puke. But I really thought that I was doing the right thing. And I really thought I was helping women and helping their marriages. And people have come to me even recently and said, you really, you saved my marriage back in 2008. And I'm like, well, oh God, (laughs) (laughs) saved you with my horrible books. Um, But I mean, so that's what I have to see. I have to see myself through kind eyes and through other people's eyes, people that have said to me, you've been this person all along and we've been able to see it. Um, And honestly, my husband cheating and leaving was one of the most painful things I've ever been through. It's also one of the most freeing things. And I have another poem where I talk about my ex and evangelical Christianity that it that caused me so much pain, but I am more me. I'm a better person. I'm a more whole person on the other side of both of them. Um, just because of they, they both, there's so many comparisons. They both just dragged me down and dragged me down and wouldn't let me be who I was because they either felt threatened. Um, you know, they felt threatened. It feels to me like, like so many stages of your process and, and, it feels like there was a lot of stages, right? You talk about all these different kind of points along the map in your history. You know, you were moving towards something, maybe away from something. Um, and you talk about it being freeing and you talk about it being a healthy move. How how do you, in like your interactions with people who maybe are close to you, you talk about a sister, uh, people who are family, who who maybe are, I think about my family that are, that are stuck in some of these things. Yeah. And as I'm moving into more awareness and more love and more understanding and, and whatnot, I'm feeling, there's this part of me that like wants to share that healing and that freedom. Yeah. And, and sometimes there is, I guess, there is something that comes across to at least family members for me where where they are defensive and they're like, they think that I am like demonizing them for the where they're at, but I really yeah. just see so much of the, like, I don't know, the hurt and the trauma and the pain that I was at and I, yeah. and I see them stuck in it. How do you reconcile your your own freeing experience with the experience of others and not push them or pull them along. I don't know. Like what, how do you navigate those types of interactions? I'm sure you have tons of relationships that were established in your professional career and ministry and church and et cetera that have changed. So how have you navigated those? Yeah. Um, I will say <laughs> right off the bat that I am not the person to ask for how to navigate them successfully. <laughs> <laughs> but I will tell you <laughs> how I have navigated them, um, since that's what you're asking. Uh, like I said, one of my sisters, so I, I am the oldest of four, um, and we're all three years apart. So it's me, then my brother, who's three years younger. He is an Anglican priest. And then my sister, six years younger, and then my sister, who's nine years younger. My sister, who is nine years younger than me, we are actually neighbors here in South Carolina. So my parents and my other sister live up in Ohio. And when we moved back from Cambodia, we made the choice to move to South Carolina rather than back to Ohio for several reasons. 
One, <laughs> because I didn't want to navigate <laughs> all of those relationships, like all of the real life people were there and I'm a different person now. And part of it was our kids. They left for Cambodia when they were young kids. They came back as teenagers slash young adults and they didn't, they weren't going to fit back into that, that place that we left. They weren't the same. Um, another thing was the weather. I, it's very tropical and hot in Cambodia and I didn't think I could handle an Ohio winter. And then the other thing is that my sister and my brother who did not disown me live in South Carolina and North Carolina respectively. And we've always lived far away from them. And I thought, let's start over in a warmer place, close to the people who still love me <laughs> and we'll do that. Well, then when my ex left and here I am with my, I've got, um, three daughters and then my oldest is married to a Cambodian young man who lives with me. So it's the five of us, <clears throat> excuse me. And we're all here. And that was, it was really great to have the support of my sister and my brother-in-law. They're amazing people. Um, when I was all alone in this new state. So I have been through a lot um, with my family members, my parents. I didn't used to say that my sister disowned me. It was in 2018. So we would go back to the States to visit from Cambodia every two years. In 2016, things were a little bit tense with us. And then in 2017, it kind of blew up. My brother-in-law wrote me a 12-page paper of all of my heresies that he collected from Facebook and my blog and all these places. And if I didn't repent, they would not see me in 2018 when we came back in the summer to visit. I didn't wow. say this publicly for a long time because I didn't want to shame them or put that out there. And at some point I just started saying it on a podcast here, saying it there. <laughs> and I talk about them in my books, but I don't mention them by name there. So if you do, Cortland, if you do ever read my book. <laughs> All right. I got a little insight going in. Good. Um, then I can tell you which poems are, but so they said that. And I said, well, I'm not going to repent because I don't, I wouldn't mean it. And I, I'm not sorry. Like, I'm not sorry for the new things. And that was so long ago. I was barely even a heretic <laughs> at that <laughs> point. I mean, I wasn't even like queer affirming. I don't think at that stage. And so, yeah, just so much has happened since then. So I've had um, conversations with my parents. That's been rough. I sent them my first book. I pointed out a poem where I, I really thank them for all of the, the things that they did for me. As far as me being a girl, I could do anything that boys could do. Like my parents, they did not, I didn't have to wear skirts or anything on my head or whatever. I, I was out there playing all the sports, doing all the stuff, mowing the grass, bailing hay, like anything that I could do whatever I wanted and my brain was celebrated and all of that. Um, so I thank them for that. But then in Jaded, my second book, I have quite a few poems. Some I left out because they just felt a little too harsh because um, I love my parents dearly, but I also really want them to know, like I really what I want them to do is change their damn minds. Like I want them to just wake up and see what's, happening and change their minds. I don't know that that will happen. They're in their early 70s. Um, they came to visit us in South Carolina last month. We hadn't seen them in two years um, since they came in November 2020 and gave us all COVID. <laughs> um, 
because they didn't wear masks at their little church because they didn't think they needed masks. So it's just this tension of all of this stuff. And um, we had a really good time, but we talked about nothing. We didn't talk about anything um, substantial. My daughter, my oldest, who designed the cover of my book, um, she showed my mom the cover of the book, which I was not planning on doing. And then my mom's like, oh, well, I hope we get a copy. And I'm thinking, oh, well, I'm not going to send you one. <laughs> um, so I don't know. We'll see. And, and since then, my sister who disowned me, I think I'm, I'm not super clear on this, but I think the idea is that I'm so far gone now that she is allowed, quote unquote, allowed to treat me as she would a non-Christian. She had told me mm -hmm. before that she has to disown me because I'm a Christian who's not believing the right things and I need to repent. But since I've backslidden all the way and I'm probably going to hell or whatever, then she could be nice to me and talk to me and even see me if I go up to Ohio um, because I'm just like her non-Christian neighbor or, or whatever. Um, but so that's been a little rough. But my, my other siblings, so my brother who is a priest and then my sister and brother-in-law who live here, we are all on different levels of deconstructing and all that. And I won't say, uh, I won't, I won't say what their personal journeys are, just that we are really great friends, um, even with some different views. And I had um, my niece who's 20, she came to visit, they all came to visit for, for Thanksgiving. She came from North Carolina and we stayed up really late one night and she was asking me all these questions. It was the first time that I had ever talked to her I lived in Cambodia that whole time. She didn't know Aunt Marla as totally deconstructed <laughs> and is pro-choice and has all the same views that she does. So she could not get enough. She's like, I could talk all night to you. And I was like, well, it's 1.30 and I'm really tired. <laughs> um, but then I gave her a copy of Unbelieve and she texted me like the next day and said she had read the whole entire thing and she loved it. She sent me poems. Um, I've had my kids, friends, from when, when they were growing up. So I'm friends with their parents. They are coming to me and saying, what book can I show my dad so that he can know that it's okay to be gay? So I'm like giving resources out to 20 year old kids of my 47 year old friends. <laughs> so it's like this whole new thing. But so that's the most difficult part is my parents and my sisters, people in my extended family, eh, some of them have like unfollowed me on Facebook or whatever. We got in some fights. Um, yeah, several of them have blocked me. I've blocked them. <laughs> it's not a big thing, but that I'm not in personal community with anyone from my past who used to like me when I was conservative and doesn't like me now. So I really have it easy and I cannot speak to the people who still see their church friends in Target on the weekend or whatever. Um, and then what do you do? I don't know anybody here. Like we moved here in the middle of the pandemic. I work from home. I know like five people. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have that. And honestly, I'm really glad. So maybe my advice mm. to people is move somewhere else. <laughs> just, <laughs> just go, I don't know, another country, another state, like somewhere where you don't have to deal with it. But then I've also reconnected with my 86-year-old great uncle 
who bought five, 10 copies of my first book, five copies of my new book. He's a former United Methodist minister. And when I was growing up, I was told that Uncle Grayson wasn't really saved. He marched in pride parades and, you mm. know, bad stuff like that. So we prayed for his yeah. salvation. And now Grayson and I are like buddies. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sorry, Cortland, that I don't have any great advice for what to do. Um, no, but th that was all yeah. really good. And I'm very grateful for all of that. I think... I think there's a significant life hack in there to like, like being a non-Christian. I I've talked about on the podcast before. Mm -hmm. uh, not that you like have to be a non-Christian. Like if you want to stick in it, like Megan's still in it. She's like you know holding down eh. the board over there in, Christian, <laughs> in the Christian world today. Anyway, uh, right? you know, it's you know it's it's commendable. Uh, but there is there is a difference. I I go to churches now as an atheist, and I'm treated like like. So, so much better than I ever was as yeah. a Christian. People are like, you're an atheist? Oh my God, you're so novel and neat. And <laughs> we just want to evangelize to you. And I'm like, oh yeah, bring that uh, casserole over here. Let's yeah. talk about Jesus. It's, yeah. it's, it's a totally different experience. Well, it's just interesting because your experience, like my experience in deconstruction has been very similar, but not because I was in Cambodia, but because I was during the pandemic, you know, unpacking and unraveling all these things. And so I'm, I'm, I want to get into your Instagram and, and what you do there. But before we get there, I just, I have to ask, like, as somebody who was watching the 2016 election from a different country, and as somebody who then jumped back into this country in March of 2020, like I'm thinking about those dates and then the timeline, you're like, you leave in 2015, you come back in March of 2020, like, just, I just have to ask, like, what was that like being like, because to me, it feels like you're probably behind a screen watching this unfold in some ways. And of course, living your life in Cambodia, but also like seeing these things from afar and, and trying to navigate how you feel about them. And, and especially as someone who's like not even living there at that time. Yeah. And again, I, I sometimes feel guilty because I wasn't here during Trump's whole presidency. I just that just hit me like a couple of days ago. It hits me every once in a while. I'm like, oh my gosh, I missed the whole thing. <laughs> like I was, I mean, I didn't miss it. I was very, very, very in tune to what was happening. Um, but yeah, it was it was very surreal to be over there. And I mean, it's just it's the same. I mean, I was experiencing all the same emotions that other people were like, ah, ha, ha, look at this joker. And then he's like, oh, wait a second. Oh, no. Oh, shit. Like, yeah, this is actually <laughs> happening. <laughs> and then just, I mean, and so that initially, and then, yeah, it just took a long time to, well, I never got used to that. But what I will say, um, one thing, I haven't talked a lot about this. I should talk about it more, is I, w I want people to know what a joke the United States of America is slash what was slash is to much of the rest of the world who yeah. can see Donald Trump for what he was like we were so we were in Cambodia it's like a $99 plane ticket to fly to Thailand or other Southeast Asian countries so we went to Thailand several times and then right before we moved back we went to um, Indonesia Malaysia Singapore and we're in Indonesia and this cab driver's driving us around and he spoke really good English. And he was just on this tirade for like 45 minutes, like 
what kind of idiot country like Alexis, the just going on and on. I'm like, yeah, I know. And could you say this louder? So the United States, like the people that I know back there can see that we're a joke. Like it's a joke. We're a joke country. Um, anyway, so, so fast forward to 2020. Yeah. What, (laughs) what I expected before I knew about this pandemic and I will say, that we kind of knew about it before everybody else. Here's the deal. Siem Reap, Cambodia, where I lived, is the home of Angkor Wat, which is one of the largest temple complexes in the world. That's the town we lived in. So we have tourists coming, I think 2 million tourists a year coming to our little town from all over the world to see this. The biggest um, tourist population comes from China. So right beside our little apartment, there is this hotel that is all Chinese tourists. Well, we hear about this like through the grapevine that there's this virus in China and it's this and there are these tourists here and we what if we catch it? And we're sitting in a Burger King in Cambodia and we find out about this and it's like alert, alert, alert. So we um, we start wearing masks. We start doing the hand sanitizer, all this stuff. And this is before there was even a case in the US, I think. So we're watching from our kitchen table watching Donald Trump say, well, there's only two cases. There's only three cases. There's only seven. We're fine. There's only 24. There's only 400 (laughs) and going on and on and on. And we expected to go back to the United States and be those people, not really like the backward missionary people, because we weren't really like that. But anytime you're you're in a foreign country for five years and you try to fit back into the United States of America, we expected to like not really know what was going on. We would be behind the times. We would this, we would that. And again, we got so lucky because here's what we knew. We knew that anytime you had a cold or anytime you're on a dusty road, you wear a mask, which is what we've been doing for this whole entire time. Like that's just what you do. We knew what it was like to not see our friends and have to talk to them over a video call (laughs) because we've been doing that for five years with everybody we knew. My kids knew how to do school stuff from a video, from a computer, like anything that that happened, like we already we knew how to do it and we fit in and the whole world was upside down. So the people in the United States had worse culture shock in their homes than we had coming back to a place that we hadn't lived in for five years. So that was happening. My daughter and her fiance were stranded in Cambodia for three months after we came back because the U.S. embassy closed and he couldn't have his um, fiance visa interview thing. So that was like the three worst months of my life, like April, May, June of 2020, because every night I would like wake up in a sweating with anxiety and then I have insomnia because I was convinced that they were going to die in Cambodia. There's no Western healthcare. Like if they got COVID, then no one could help them and they would die. And how would I get my daughter and son-in-law's bodies back to the U.S.? Like that's what was going through my mind. So they got here at the end of June. And then two months later, my husband left. <laughs> so all of that is happening. Wow. And then there's like this election. So um, 
I don't know how I've dealt with it all. And I'm sure just like everybody else, I don't understand anywhere close to the depth of all of my trauma and all the things that I've been through and I'm going through. Um, but it's, it's good to be back. I'm glad to be, um, I'm glad that we had already decided to move back when we decided to move back. Otherwise we would have been, um, in a scarier situation, I think, than even here. Um, minus the, this is a side note, but I remember my ex-father-in-law yelling at me on Christmas morning before we moved to Cambodia, like the following week, that he couldn't believe I was taking his granddaughters to Cambodia, like this dangerous, dangerous place. Um, except in Cambodia, people don't have guns <laughs> and nobody's going to shoot you. And there was a school shooting in my tiny, itty bitty little Ohio town while we were in Cambodia. Um, yeah. There's 70 kids in my graduating class and there's a shooting in that school. Whereas here, my daughters are completely safe. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just, I also have a lot to say about the U.S. and our ideas of superiority and white supremacy and colonization and blah, blah, blah. But um, I'm just really grateful, even though I think I have been through quite a lot of hard stuff. Um, looking back, I can see what I would have called God's hand in all of it. And now I don't know what I call it, but, um, I, I would not have changed it, which is weird, mm -hmm. but everything has fit together to make me who I am now. And I really like me. So, yeah. So, so I want to like your, your experience, all of this different, you know, change, you know, contextual change, you know, your environmental change, uh, the, you know, family dynamic changes that you've been through your religious beliefs and, uh, you know, spiritual, uh, context changes. Uh, I, I, I'd like to like, hear you talk a little bit about, I think one thing that I'm consistently leveled with when I interact with people. And I think a lot of people are, is that, you know, when, when people deconstruct or people, uh, uh, begin, you know, waking up to certain things, uh, there is this idea that like, oh, it's just this massive pendulum swing and you're just going the opposite direction and you're just adhering to some new, uh, legalism or this new doctrine that is just the opposite of this other one that you didn't like. And yet that's not actually the experience that I feel like most people have is you talk about this process and this, you know, kind of like multi-year journey that you've been on. You continue to, we talked a little bit before we started recording, you you continue to read, I don't know what, what you said, 200 and something books, more books than I've read in the last five years <laughs> uh, in, in a year. You're reading all of this, you're consuming all this content and, and I'm sure there's constant change like even on a weekly or monthly basis you're probably going like oh i think differently about this how how do you explain that or would you say that that is your experience um versus this idea that like you've just grabbed onto this new ideology and you know it's the opposite of this other one that you didn't like okay you, yeah like, navigate <clears throat> nuance and change as you keep going yeah, that's really hard because that's one of the things that's really hard for people to wrap their minds around. Like I recently just 
shared something. I shared it quite a while ago on Facebook. Facebook is where all the people come out. <laughs> like all the people that knew me before or whatever. Um, but yeah, I shared. Yeah. That's for all yeah. of us. That's yeah. It's <laughs> I stay off that fucking website. No, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Well, I do it just for fun. Sometimes I do just like to poke. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, that. No, I, what I've been doing recently um, is sharing old Facebook memories and then putting what I think now. So this particular one, I can't remember the, the situation, but I was like, we found a house that's so perfect. Praise you, Jesus, blah, 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 blah. Like on and on about praise you, Jesus, praise you, Jesus. And it was this house that we found in Cambodia to rent. And so I, I said something to the effect of, okay, so Jesus gets all the credit for this house, but where was Jesus? during a pandemic, during my husband cheating and leaving, during this. And I list like all the really shitty things that had happened. And then I reiterated what I keep saying. This is kind of the thing I've been pushing a lot lately is I'm done giving God all of the credit and none of the blame. Like that is what has really just been pissing me off where like, let's say a football player is arrest out on the field and all these people rush in and save him and then it's like everywhere praise you jesus praise you jesus praise you jesus well if he would have died no one would have blamed god like that would not have been god's fault nobody that went to school for years and years to become an emergency technician or a surgeon they're not getting any credit only god gets the credit like i just get so angry so i had said something along those lines and so people are commenting blah blah, blah. and this woman pipes up and says that I would just suggest that you like read the gospel of John and, and read through and have God speak to you and don't listen to what I'm saying, but like, and all of this stuff. And I said, listen, <laughs> do you know how many times I've read the gospel of John? No, I'm not going to do that. And I said, it's the same thing. My sister who disowned me tried to tell me, just read through the Bible. Like I haven't done that 40 times. I read through the Bible when I was eight and I never stopped all the way up to 40 something. And so then she came back and said, I'm not playing this game with you where you're not open to any discussion or you're not open to listening to anyone else and you're doing the exact same blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, it's not a game and here's the deal. I believed exactly the way you did for almost 40 years, okay? That's how I believed, what you are telling me. I have since woken up to things. I've learned this. I've learned this. I've learned this. I have evolved into this new way of thinking. There is no way that I'm going back to how I believed then. And that is different from me just coming at you with my position and not knowing what it's like to be in your shoes. I argued your position for 40 years. I argued that. So have to be open to discussion to something that I personally <laughs> was so gung-ho about for that many decades. Like that's the part. And I try to think of good analogies and metaphors because that's what poets do. Like you try to, what will get this person to understand? And I don't really have a great one, but one thing that I can think of is like a, like a history textbook for first graders. Like here's the, the history textbook and we're gonna learn this, 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 and this. Well, then you learn, like you start reading all this other stuff. Then you read adult textbooks and then you read textbooks that aren't whitewashed and you learn all of this history. And then someone wants to argue, well, this is what it says in my textbook. And you're like, well, I've 
I've moved beyond that. Like that is simplified. That's not the full truth. There's a reason first graders don't learn about lynching, like all of these things. And I, it, it really is this progression and it's not like a, I got my hands here weighing. It's not the same. It's not, this is one side and this is one side. It is, it's moving forward. The more you learn, like I still know all of that stuff, but now I know the cultural context of the Bible verse. Now I know which uh, books of the Bible were taken out. And now I know which men in Europe decided how the Bible was put together. Now I know that the Greek word for this doesn't even mean that. Now I know that homosexuality wasn't a word in the Bible and it didn't mean this. Like I know all of these things. So I'm not just trading one belief for another. It literally is more and more and more knowledge, deeper knowledge, improved knowledge. Like it's not, it's not the same thing. And I'm not dogmatic, like in the way that they are. I'm dogmatic about the fact that I I have learned more. There is more to the story. And now here it is, rather than being dogmatic about something that I don't know that much about. Like I used to believe that I had the absolute truth. So even if someone came out with me with a different opinion, I would hold to that truth and find a way. And I'm pretty smart. So I could find ways to quote unquote, prove it or to make it stand. Um, even when I didn't actually <laughs> believe what I was saying myself, I, I believed that I had to really, 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 really prove this. And now I don't feel that anymore. I don't feel the need. Um, when I put heretic on the cover of my first book, I did it on purpose because you can't come to me and say, well, you're a heretic. I already called myself that. I don't actually care what you say. And now I don't even care what the Bible says anymore. Like I no longer care, but I do know that I want to learn more about it so that I can reach the people who still do care what the Bible says, because I believe you can wake up to a lot of things just by understanding the Bible more. If you still want to be a Christian, you still want to hold to that book. And I have a lot of friends who are still Christians. I have friends who are pastors. Um, the difference is we have this shared value. Like we want to love people. And we're going to find the best way to love people, not hold to um, this certain set of beliefs that naturally excludes so many people, makes them into enemies. And then we can say and do whatever the hell we want to them because we're doing it for God. Like they're enemies of God. So I can be cruel to you. Like if you're an enemy of God, um, and Donald Trump picked up on that. Donald Trump, who doesn't give one, like, didn't give a rat's ass about God. He figured out that all he had to say was <laughs> Joe Biden is hurting God. The Black Lives Matter movement is hurting God. <laughs> like, everybody's hurting God. And the Christians are like, oh, no, we can't hurt God. Mm -hmm. And not even yeah. thinking about what that would actually mean to hurt God. What what does that mean? Um, so, again, I don't know that I answered your question, Cortland, but that's. I, I get that a lot that people say you can't just be dogmatic about this and move into dogmatic about that. And I'm like, it's not the same. They are not the yeah, you're same. You're just a liberal, you know, legalist. You're just a, you know, whatever, uh, you know, dogmatic about your 
leftist ideas, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and I think I you make a fair point to, to in, in terms of how you say being open to new information and new ideas and expansive understanding. And, and the other side is oftentimes building their entire argument on delegitimizing other sources of data or other opinions mm -hmm. or other ideas. And, and you're not saying that like, when you use that analogy of the first grade textbook, you're not delegitimizing. You're just saying it's just not complete. It's yeah, just not everything, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. like this is, this is maybe step one, but there's three more steps and look at these and, and we can't, you know, there's, there's other steps past where we're at, where all of us yeah. are. Like there's things we don't know about other experiences that have still not been, you know, told and highlighted aspects of the world and reality that we don't know yet. Um, that I think, everybody who kind of like finds themselves in a similar worldview to the three of us would acknowledge that, yeah, we're open to new ideas, uh, but don't equate, you know, the flat earther with the, you know, aerospace engineer. It's not right, very balanced right. to say these mm -hmm. are two <laughs> level opinions. I think there's an assumption that people deconstructing just don't know the Bible well enough or didn't read it enough. <laughs> and it's like, no, actually we read it so much that we started mm -hmm. deconstructing. So, mm -hmm. um, but I would love to also, because I think that all of this is also linked into your Instagram account and what you do there with white girl learning and, um, how you've been really elevating voices of those who have been, that have been marginalized in, in society, in the church. And so I'm curious, like how that, came about and just kind of what, if, if you want to tell our listeners too, like what you're doing there. Yeah. So I started reading when I was four and I never stopped. Like I've just read books forever. It's my favorite thing to do. And when we helped plant that church with our black friends, um, that started, that started me thinking like, I, I don't remember now. I'd have to look back at my journal um, to see when I started reading books by particularly black authors. But it was at, in 2017 that I, we were in Cambodia and I remember reading, um, like I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. I read um, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. I read The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. I read I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. And I, at that same time, yeah, at that same time, um, someone I knew on Instagram, I was scrolling through and she had a photo of a book and had all these things around the book that kind of matched it. And I was like, what is that? And then I looked in her feed and she had all these photos of books. And then I saw someone say bookstagram. And I'm like, wait a second. This is like, I've never, <laughs> <laughs> you can do this. Like you can put books on your like not just your kids or whatever and so at the end of 2017 well, December 1st 2017 I started um, a bookstagram account called white girl learning and I got the name from Jacqueline Woodson who's a queer black author who I love her book brown girl dreaming um I, I love it she's talking about her childhood now she always wanted to be a writer and I love books about writers and so I started out, I, I want to say three books a week I did. And I would just photograph them in a tree or on the bed or, or wherever and, and write a little bit about them. And then I started meeting these people and I don't know how it happened, but over, so it's been five years now. And at some point, I think 2018 or 19, I started in Black History Month in February, 
I did a book every day instead of just three days a week. And then I kept going. So I think I've been doing that for like three years now. It's just every single day. I don't read 365 books. I've read maybe 250. I don't really keep track. Um, but on Mondays, my 12 year old niece reads and reviews a, like a middle grade novel. These are all books by black authors, indigenous authors or other authors of color. And Sunday, I have a Sunday six stack because I was um, kind of sad about all my books that only got to be on my bookstagram one time. So then I would have six books with kind of a theme or maybe the spines make poetry or the spines are all the same color or whatever. And then I do that on Sunday. Now I do picture books with my eight-year-old niece and five-year-old niece who can both read and we, we do that. Um, once I got back to the States and the publishers found out about me like I started getting more followers now I get a bunch of free books so that's super helpful um, as a single mom supporting her family and with all my money going to books now I don't have to spend as much <laughs> I mean I still buy a lot of books because I if you can see behind me these are all books that I have yeah. read and they yeah, are you all, get a lot of books they're all books <laughs> by authors of color I have a white bookshelf upstairs it's like a, a little one um I still do read white authors um just not a whole lot of them because I have so much to catch up on. Um, anyway, so this just became this community. I have met people in a, a couple of people in real life over this now. I um, have done IG lives with people. I've met authors. I've like it's super exciting to me because there'll be authors who I have read all their books and I love them, and then they'll they'll retweet me or something. And I, I, I seriously, I will either, I, I have this hand clap thing that I do when I get really excited or I jump up and down. I'm just like, oh my gosh, Imani Perry. And I'll just be all excited about it. Um, but what, now it's like 13,000 followers or whatever. The, the algorithm sucks. So I'll sometimes do a book post and I get 20 people see it or like it or whatever. Um, but other times there's more, but I'm just going to, I just keep going because I am learning. I am, I know that people, like they come to me all the time. Thank you for doing this. I've, my kids' bookshelves are now more diverse. This is the first black author I've read. And it just on and on and on. And it's, it's this perfect fit for me because it's what I love more than anything in the world. Like it's, and so it's, personal but it's also a labor of love but then I I love being able to share like indie authors who don't get as much exposure like people who self-publish their poetry books I'll share those um because as an author myself I know what it means to me when someone shares my book like we were talking you saw my book because um Pastor Trey shared it a couple of days ago or something and and I yeah. that's that's how people find out about it. That's how they buy it. That's how I'll be able to make enough money eventually to stop doing all this writing for other people that I do for my day job. And I can actually just write all the books that are in my head that want to come out. Um, but I, every day I wake up excited to do that and to see who I'm going to meet and who I'm going to talk to and what authors I can encourage. And Rachel Held Evans, who I mentioned in Unbelieve, who was super instrumental. I give her every ounce of credit for turning my ship around <laughs> and getting me to, to wake up and go in the other direction. She did yeah. that before she died, like where she would just champion authors. So there are authors that I read now who got book deals because Rachel Held Evans told a publisher about this indigenous woman or about this black woman. 
Um, and I don't have the kind of platform Rachel did. I mean, maybe someday I, I will, I don't know, but I don't need to wait for that. Like I can, I can do that now. And I, I it, it's just, yeah, I, I just love it so much. And in the, it's the opposite of Facebook because Facebook, when I'm putting things up here about anti-racism and everybody's pissed about it, this is a space on Instagram. People are only coming if they want to learn, if they want to read from a different perspective, if they want to meet a different author who's different from them, if they want to read queer authors. So I go, I kind of follow the Heritage Month. Um, January is open, then February is Black History Month, March is Women's History Month, April is Poetry Month, May is Asian American Pacific Islander Native Hawaiian Month, uh, June is Pride Month, then July and August are open, then we've got Hispanic Heritage Month, Indigenous History Month, and then another open month. So I, yeah, I kind of have that all planned out. My bookshelves up in my bedroom um, have 12 shelves, and they're like all these books that I have yet to read and um I've got like 10 books going at one time and yeah it's just that's incredible it's a lot of fun that's incredible what a resource and <laughs> yeah I don't think I follow I I have since I found Twitter I've really failed at getting on Instagram ever uh but I'm gonna uh get on there and follow and and just scroll through and like pick out some books that I need to add to my yeah. list um, because it really is a resource. Sometimes there's so much out there, like finding like, okay, here's a starting place of like, here's a list that I can kind of come up with. Um, I think it could be really helpful for people. Anytime I see like Robert Monson post a stack of books, I'm mm -hmm. like, Oh, screen grab it. And I like, yeah. I'm like now I have like a few books that I can, I can grab. Um, and so, yeah, I want to encourage people to go and, and follow that account, but also follow you throughout uh, the rest of the web, all the other places. Uh, if we want to see your, you know, uh, snarky, uh, Facebook <laughs> posts, uh, I, I'm here for that too. Yeah. I posted yeah. the other day. I said, I, I shared a Facebook memory and it was about something totally unrelated to what I usually post. And I said, I would like to thank 2011 Marla for not making every single post about God and Jesus. <laughs> I, I like almost all of them were, but yeah. Yeah. Come on. Hang out on Facebook. I don't hang out there much. Just like I said, when I'm in a little punchy kind of mood, <laughs> want to stir things up a little yeah. bit, which I I appreciate. I'm all I'm all about. Yeah. Megan, what else here is we're yeah, wrapping up? No, I was just I used to run a Facebook group, and I had to stop. It, it just didn't work out as much for me. I, you know, but um, yeah, this has been really great. I want to give you a chance to promote like your your book you just came out with, and just kind of plug your stuff and talk a little bit about where people can find you and interact with your work and everything. So yeah, this is, this is your chance. Yeah, that. I have, I have a website, marlataviano.com. I don't do much there. So that's not really a place to hang out. I, I love Twitter. So I am Marla Taviano on Twitter. It's just that, I mean, I was scared there for a while that we we're going to lose it forever. I don't know what'll happen, but I decided I would hang out just until it, collapse all, all the yeah, way. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to stick around too. We, yeah. Megan and I have like, you know, very strong Twitter habits. Yeah, and I felt really bad for all my friends like you who have that because I don't really 
I don't, I don't know how many Twitter followers I have. People are not following me on Twitter. I am just engaging with everybody else. And then I'll share my, my book photos from Instagram on Twitter. Um, so then White Girl Learning on Instagram and then Marla Taviano on Instagram too. That's where I post all my um, personal stuff, all my book stuff. And my books, um, Unbelieve and Jaded, they are books of poetry. But if you don't like poetry, um, I would encourage you to try them anyway because they're not they're not the kind of poetry that you don't get. Like they're, it's honestly, it's some, it could be like a tweet, but I made it into a poem. And that's, that's what I did for Trey as I turned a couple of his tweets into poems. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And I said, would you already write like that? Like when you're crafting something punchy to say on Twitter, just move it around a little bit and have little lines like this. And there is a poem. So what used to be like, I'd be in the shower and I would think of like Facebook posts. Now I'm in the shower and I'm like, that's a poem. So some of mine are longer, some are shorter, but they all just go through my whole journey. So this new one, what happened was I wrote Unbelieve and then my plan was, okay, you know what? I'm tired of all the deconstruction, la, la, la. I'm moving on. I'm going to write a second book where I just go like into the freedom and all of that. And I sat down and tried to write it. And then I have a poem in here where Jaded just wouldn't leave me the hell alone. Like all this stuff kept happening. I was still bitter and angry. I was digging into my past and all of these things. And so I had a lot to get off my chest. So I called Jaded um, Unbelieve's bitchy little sister because if people liked Unbelieve, um, but it was a little too much for them, then they should not read Jaded. If they wanted a little bit more of that, <laughs> like if they wanted to read Fuck, more times than they should they should uh, pick up jaded but some of the things in here i've got scare tactics disability justice sex impurity patriarchy white supremacy colonization queerly beloved pro-life infidelity all this stuff um so i'm just writing what i'm experiencing what i'm feeling i tried to write it in prose i tried to write unbelieve as like a deconstruction memoir and I was boring myself. I was changing my mind too fast. And I, I just couldn't figure out what to do with that. And it somehow just magically turned into poems. And so I did it again. And every day I get messages from people just telling me what it meant to them, um, that they resonated with it, that they laughed, that they cried. And so, yeah, I just love to do it. And I I'm just really thankful that I get to. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I'm excited to pick up both, both copies. I'm excited for the to, one that says fuck more. Yeah. That's, that's, that's marketed right towards me. <laughs> okay. But I have to tell a quick story about this because I echo what you said about poetry. Your book of poetry was the first book of poetry that I ever bought. Um, and for those folks who don't know, the way that I, and I don't even know if you remember this, Marla, but the way that I met you is you DM'd me on Twitter. We had probably interacted a little bit, but you said, can I send you a copy of my book? And I do get that occasionally. And sometimes if I know I won't read it, I'm like, no, like, you know, I kind of say like, oh, it might not be for me. But yours, I looked at it and I was like, no, actually, I want to order it because it looks so mm. good. And I think that I'll really like it. And so I was sitting waiting for to pick up sushi to go. And I, I remember sitting in the parking lot and ordering your book. And then Danielle Mayfield commented when I tweeted about it and was like, you are going to love this book. And I was like, oh, if Danielle endorses it, I feel like <laughs> this is going to be great. 
And um, I, I read it like 50 pages at a time over the course of a couple of weeks. And it made me fall in love with poetry for the first mm. time. And it like I was not a poetry person. And now I have I'm looking at myself. I have like eight poetry books. Whoa. Um, but it really also was so vivid and real. And, and you read so many of the same books that I was reading at the time, mm-hmm. too. And so um, I really it was it was um, and it's a different, unique way of expressing um, all of your kind of deconstruction thoughts and all of it. So um, I echo what you said about poetry and I highly recommend Marla's book to our listeners. So thank you. All right. Yeah. Yeah. You heard it here. Everyone who's listening should go get a copy. And if you already have a copy, buy another copy. You know, yeah, for sure. You can never um, have too many copies of the same exact book. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you can't. You can't because you <laughs> could always find friends to give it to. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for for being uh, on this episode by taking your time and sharing it with us. And it was every minute truly delightful. And I'm I'm really excited to to read both books and and hopefully do more things uh, with you as we continue to share space in in this weird community we exist in. Yeah. Thank you, Cortland. Thank you, Megan. All right. That was that All was right. I don't know I don't know where we're at right now. I I always mean to look up the episode number before we record, but I always forget. We're in the 70s uh now and it's I don't have any plan of stopping. If this is this has been super <laughs> enjoyable, we have some incredible guests that are coming up and I mean at some point we'll probably take a season break and and you know bring it back for for season four um but you know we're not there yet people we want to talk to and so many incredible guests that we've already talked to and uh we like the interaction we like the conversation uh something that we've been bringing up regularly on the podcast is the twitter spaces that we do every tuesday morning if you follow megan or i on twitter you'll hear about those and it's a great way to engage and join the conversation and, you know, kind of give your take on on topics and things that are going on, as well as the Discord uh, that we have that's going. Um, that is not Patreon exclusive. If you want to join our Patreon and be a patron, we do uh, very much encourage that and, and love that. Uh, there's links in uh, show notes always and links in all the bios uh, that we have across the web. Uh, to join the Patreon, but if you want to get in the Discord, that's another way. Uh, there's a great community of folks. Um, I don't know what number. Uh, over 100, maybe 200 now. There's a lot of people in there. Yeah. So it's join that time. community if you would like. Megan, where can people follow you around the web? You can follow me at The Pursuing Life. Um, I also have the Deconstruction Book Club. We're reading Damon Garcia's book, who was a previous guest on there after, um, The God Who Riots, this month. So if you're interested in that, um, that's another Discord you can join, too. You can join both. Hey, why not? Um, And you can follow the podcast at Thereafter Podcast on Instagram and Thereafter Pod on Twitter. I don't think we said that already. And Cortland, did you say say where people can find you? Yeah, primarily at spacehay.com slash... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, I'm at Cortland Copy everywhere, primarily on Twitter these days, Instagram as well. Uh, I do have all the other alternative socials, Mastodon and... I was just going to say, you joined uh, Mastodon too? 
I joined. I joined them all. I joined them okay. all. Uh, Post.news, I have a profile. Uh, <laughs> Pinterest, MySpace, uh, Tumblr. I don't there have a sub stack yet because um, I don't write. Uh, but yeah, if you want to follow me, you'll, you'll, you'll find me. Uh, but if you want to get my attention or, or really engage in conversation, uh, follow me or uh, tag me on Twitter. That's where I spend the majority of time on the internet. And uh, yeah, that's all I have for this week. Uh, Megan, anything else for the, the, I almost said the guests, the listeners, as we're, as we're heading uh, out? No, I guess that, yeah, let's call it. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs>